You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. This is Trailblazers with Kirsty Stamway. I used to bite my tongue and hold my breath. And welcome into Trailblazers here on SENZ. This week, we're very lucky to be joined by an absolute superstar on the sevens field, Portia Woodman. Now, she's won World Cups in 15s and 7s. She's won Commonwealth Games gold. And now she can call herself an Olympic champion. Portia Woodman joins us now out of MIQ. Thank you so much for taking time to do this. We really appreciate it. Two weeks on from becoming an Olympic gold medalist. How does it feel, Porsche? And has it sunk in yet? I think the, the crazy thing is because we, we've been in quarantine by ourselves for the last two weeks, it hasn't quite sunk in. Like the medal sleeps next to me in my bed every night, but I'm still like, okay, cool. Waiting for that kind of that moment to drop that we are gold medalists. And we're constantly looking over photos and trying to remember like every moment of the last six weeks from Townsville to getting to the village and then winning the medal. So it's, it, I don't think it has sunken in, but it won't be until I get to go home, share it with my family, share it with my partner, get around to see lots of different communities. Like that will be the moment when it really kind of sinks in that we won this gold medal. We know that a family is big for you. You always talk about FOE, which uh, means family over everything. So who is Portia Woodman? We always talk about athletes and their achievements and not the teams behind them. And who's your whanau? So my whanau, I've got my partner, Renee Woodcliffe, who's with the Black Ferns team. And we have a daughter who's nine in a couple of days five days so we've got to get back before that obviously um so they're my they're my rock they're my rocks at home Renee's so cool because she's been through the athlete life or going through the athlete life she understands every stress or every worry or all the highs and lows that come with it and especially being in the sevens program she's been there and she knows how hard it is every day to get up mentally and physically for it and then our daughter she's so cool she's in like a year um, a nine-year-old all-girls rugby team and to be a part of that and be and be able to witness these girls grow over the last three years has been really really cool and they have no idea like what we are what I am or what Renee is in terms of rugby world but they just see us as their coaches and I absolutely love them so much like they're so inspiring they have no idea how much they inspire me it's really really cool and just seeing their progress like I was there for their first game because Renee was away with her rugby so I got to witness them go from their first game where they were still lost didn't figure out how you know couldn't figure out how to tackle or anything and now Renee's been taking over and she's saying that they're playing the best rugby they've ever played and just to see that kind of progress is really cool, um, I guess. And then my my family, my mum, dad, my siblings. Mum and dad are both my um, 
yeah, they're my home. Dad is my biggest supporter. I can never do anything wrong in his eyes. He's, I'm totally dad's little princess in terms of like everything I do is perfect. <laughs> it's never anyone else's. It's never my fault. It's someone else's fault. And I'm just like, come on, dad. <laughs> Does that make you daddy's little girl then? Oh, totally. Dad's little princess. If I want something, all I need to do is just whisper in dad's ear and be like, dad. <laughs> I don't take advantage of it too much, but yeah. <laughs> so what was it like growing up? What did things look like for you? Because you grew up up north, right? Northland? I was born up north, but I moved to Auckland when I was six. I We went back and forth quite a lot. Um, not moving back and forth, but travel back and forth during holidays and times like that. Um, home is always up north. Like I, Even though I was raised in Auckland, I don't consider that home. Um, but growing up, it was always around rugby. Everything was evolved around rugby. Um, Dad was playing Grizzlies. By the time I was born, he had finished playing for North Auckland. And so I didn't really get to see him in his prime, but I was still watching him on every Saturday and then going out to watch my brothers. Um, weekends or the, whenever the All Blacks were playing, it was such a family affair, like uncles, cousins, everyone would come over. You'd have your onion dip, you'd have your chips, you'd have your platters, you'd have treats drinks, fizzies, everything. Like it was such an awesome affair. I had no idea what rugby was and didn't really care about it. But um, life evolved around rugby and sports. And mum and dad were always like fully into us trying all sorts of different sports. Mind you, there was one sport I was never allowed to play, which was league because dad was just not into it. Dad's like rugby, rugby, rugby. No, no, not touching league. And I was like, okay, whatever. But I would have loved to have played league too, and that was just not a no-go. Even my brothers say, no, you're not touching league. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but for, for my family, sport was huge. Um, always grew up chucking the ball around with my brothers, with my dad. I probably had one of the better passes. When I was at primary school, better passes than all the boys, purely because we had the rugby ball chucked around everywhere we went. Um, and then, like, growing up in Auckland, like, when we moved from Kaipo here to Auckland, I noticed a big difference in the type of people or just the difference in people from up home to the slow-moving country town, not in a rush, not crazy about anything like that, to Auckland. This is big buzz, big cities, lots of people. Um, and that was that was different. You know, I grew up just down the road from my nana's house up in Kaipuhe to living in Auckland where we had my my had a few whānau living with us, but we didn't really see much of them unless they were driving from up north all the way down to Auckland to fly out somewhere or something like that. So whānau was huge for me when we were living up in Kaipuhe. Um, once we got to Auckland, it was all about us and our little whānau trying to get the best for, our, for, our, for me and my younger brother anyway. My older brother is 13 years older than me. So by the time he was 17, I was like four and he had moved out. Um, he had moved to Auckland to go and study. And so I hardly got to grow up with him. I didn't get to grow up with him really because he left home. And then once we moved to Auckland, we started to get to know him a bit better. And yeah. How competitive were things between you and your brother who was at home and of course your mum and dad too? Yeah, yeah, my and my brother, like we're like best and worst enemies, constantly <laughs> fighting because we want to be first for everything or better than each other at everything. Um, but then if anyone was to be beat one of us, we'd fight the other person. So it was, it was like best and worst enemies. It was funny. Um, I was the only one that was allowed to beat up my brother, and he was the only one allowed me beat me up. But anyone else would kill each other, <laughs> would kill them. <laughs> With mum and dad, they 
they wanted us, mum wanted us to be into swimming and dad wanted us to do track and field. So they were competitive against themselves because they were like trying to pick which sport for us. And dad ultimately won. We only got into athletics and I can't swim for shit. So I blame dad. <laughs> Interesting. So did you do the track events or did you do everything? Yeah, I did track and field pretty much right from the age of nine. So yeah. that was like, I went into Colgate Games, into provincials and all this, all the stuff. So was really cool. I loved, I loved track and field. Wanted to be, I like, well, growing up, I wanted to be the fastest woman in the world going to the Olympics, winning a hundred meter sprint. That was not going to work. <laughs> what about your culture? You're from the North, which is Napuhi. So how important was culture and being Māori to you and your family growing up? I think what I, I was the result of like the generation where they got punished for learning to deal or being able to speak to deal and not as necessarily my parents or my nana and that but they were of that generation and because my parents never got to learn to deal they wanted my brother and I to learn it and so we went through bilingual unit right from primary school all the way through to high school and for them they were so proud to be Maori that I didn't know any difference so I had no idea that there were people that were embarrassed of being Māori. I didn't know that there was people that didn't like being Māori or didn't like Māori people because that was not my normal. I was immersed in te ao Māori where even the teachers were like, we're tangata whenua, this is our land, you're proud to be Māori no matter what and all this sort of stuff. And I was just like, yeah, like this is, this is my normal. And it wasn't until I got to high school that I started to realise that Oh, actually, not everyone's proud to be Māori. Not everyone likes, um, you know, necessarily has a good view of Māori people. And it just kind of shocked me. And I would end up in quite a big discussion with mum and dad about it because dad works at the Ministry of Education with all the Kurakaupapa kids' uh, schools in Auckland. And I just couldn't understand why, like, the whole thing of being Māori, embarrassed and all that sort of stuff. But for me, I'm absolutely, like, hugely proud of being who I am and grateful that mum and dad decided to put us through to our Māori or into our Māori, um, Māori units at school because it's definitely made me who I am and with it, with that I've been able to share with with Renee. Renee was brought up in a country school, no, no Māori at all, had no understanding of the tree of Waitangi, no gods, no Māori gods or anything in her life and I couldn't understand it. This Māori girl from Paidor who had like Māori throughout her just didn't know these stories and I'm grateful that I've had my experience to share that with her and then I have the opportunity to share with the girls in my team as well. So without mum and dad putting me through all that, I wouldn't be able to share the stories and pass it on and and I guess, yeah, just teach the girls what's important about being te ao Māori. Yeah, my mother was much the same. It was shameful to speak Māori, so they actually grew up in the city uh, away from the marae, and it was very hard. Um, you don't really know when where you fit in. When you're in the city, you know that there's this other part of you, but when you go, like for me, down the coast, um, you don't feel like you belong there, so you're in a bit of limbo, but... Um, over the past couple of years, hearing people like you, Porsche, and guys like Sean Wainui come out and be proud and, and speak Māori really makes me embrace it, and I've started learning it as well. That's cool, because like, like we, that's all we want, right? Like when I go up north to Kaikawe, it's, you know, it's not the best environment for 
for young children, for anyone really, you know, there's not so many jobs and there's all sorts going on up there. And so all I really want is for people to recognize that I'm Māori and I come from a small town. Yes, I grew up in Auckland, but we all, we all come from somewhere, come from the, a small place and we are Māori that we can achieve anything. It's just, you know, like, and like, like you say, just to be, be inspired and be proud of who we are because that's a superpower. We have no idea how strong that makes us. We come from lineage of mana wahine or mana tangata or tangata whenua, you know, like all of that sort of stuff. So recognizing it's not just who we are here on this earth, but the people who have gone before us and the people that are yet to come like there's so much we're so we're we are lucky enough to be proud of and if we can just inspire one person that's amazing so yeah no it's it's wicked it's wicked we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll look at Portia Woodman, the netballer. I'm sure there's a great story there, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Trailblazers on SENZ. This is Trailblazers with Kirsty Stamway. Welcome back into Trailblazers. Kirsty Stanway here alongside Portia Woodman. We've just been talking about your whānau, your heritage and, and where you grew up. But something else that was a big part of your life growing up was the netball court. So tell us a little bit about how far you took that. What were your dreams and aspirations as a kid? Yeah, netball was a big sport. Mum loved it. She played it when she was young and she wanted to be a silver fern. Um, so she kind of put that... Um, showed me the love for the for, for the sport. I think I got a bit, I got serious about netball around under under 15s. I made Auckland Waitakere, got all the way up to 21s, um, loved netball. Pretty much when I was about 16, 17, I wanted to make New Zealand secondary schools. And that was the time when I wanted to be a silver fern. I wanted to be the next Timapata George or play alongside Laura Langman, like these girls were my idols, Grace Rasmussen, all these girls were just amazing. And I really looked up to them and wanted to be a silver fern. Um, so ultimately I got to the squad below the silver ferns and it was pretty much when you make that squad, you pretty much go into the silver ferns if you've done enough, right? And uh, that started from the New Zealand 21s, got put into the squad and from that squad I was supposed to go into the um, Silver Ferns. But the year 2012, oh, yeah, so I was, sorry, I was training partner with the Mystics. Um, I finished school in 2009. I was training partner with them in 2010, 2011, 2013, uh, 2012 is when I got fully contracted, which was wicked. Like, I got to play and train alongside Timapata George, um, Timapata, Timapata Bailey, and um, Anna Erasmus, Anna Harrison, all these girls, Laura Langman, oh no, not Laura Langman, Maria Tutia, Catherine Latu, like I was alongside them and that was a dream. Like that was an absolute dream come true. But the, the when I made the team, it was quite different because I wasn't able to play the way I wanted to play. Like I guess I had to, I don't know, I had to kind of try and figure out how I play my game within their structure. And so I struggled quite a lot. Um, and I wanted to play a wing defence, but they saw me more as a wing attack centre. I was too short for wing defence, apparently. And that was that. I understand that. There's some, you know, whatever. But um, within that, I struggled because I was like, I'm not getting game time because I'm playing positions that I've never played before. So I kind of went down like a downward spiral with 
netball and I lost myself for a bit. I just kind of switched off, turned up to trainings, did what I needed to do and then left and didn't really um, enjoy it as much um, until like I started making games. I, started, I played a, a few quarters. Um, I think I played my first quarter was against the Vixens. I played in the third third quarter and like I loved it. I was in front of my final. I was at the Trust Stadium. I got a few intercepts, which was amazing. And I got off on the fourth quarter and I just still remember that game. Like I still remember running around these amazing, amazing wing, wing attacks that I was playing against. And I just stuck with them. Like my game was um, man on defense and I loved it because I loved it when I'd get an elbow in the guts or a push in the back because I was too tight to them. And I could, I remember that game like it was yesterday and just that feeling of getting to play alongside them was unreal. Like it was a dream come true. And then so like towards the end of that year, that's when rugby released their go for gold program where they were going all over the country. And I, I signed up for it and I was just like, we'll just see how it goes. Like I had played a bit like junior grades, like in my brother's team, my brother was three years younger than me. I played lock in one of his games. I played, I think I played eight in another game. I played it intermediate. Like there was some games that I had played, but it was pretty much just get the ball and run around or just tackle someone. Like it wasn't anything structural. I hadn't, didn't know anything about the game really. Um, and so when I went to the go for gold, I was like, yeah, whatever, we'll just see how it goes. Me and Kayla McAllister went along, had, did a few drills and didn't really think anything of it until I got caught up to go to another session. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. And I had to talk to mum and dad and be like, okay, well, what do I do? I'm, I've just made the mystics. I'm like contracted. This is my dream. I've been wanting this for a long time. But then there's this other thing like rugby it's it's in the family like I could potentially go to the Olympics like what the heck mum wanted me to stick with netball I was like this is an opportunity I can't give up like I legit cannot say no so I went along to this next session and I got called up for a Fiji tournament and then I had to go see the Mystics CEO uh, Julie and I had to be like Julie I'm kind of trialing out for rugby I don't know how serious it is I've made the team for Fiji um what do you reckon do you think I I can do it she goes yeah well you know just be safe we can you know we can talk about it when you get back when I went to Fiji I fractured my shoulder came back and then it was like downward after that I wasn't uh they didn't asked me to come trial for the Mystics. I had to play like NPC. I think it's Beko now. I, I had to play that competition for them to decide whether I needed to, whether I could get a trial. So I couldn't because I had a fractured shoulder. So that kind of was like, cool. That got dropped. I got dropped out of that one. And then with the New Zealand development squad or New Zealand, the squad below the uh, Civil Ferns, they said that I wasn't committed to the sport and I totally get it. I wasn't committed to, they said I wasn't committed to the sport. Therefore my contract had been um, cancelled or whatever. So was the decision do you think uh, sort of made for you or in your heart of hearts, had you set your sights on rugby and that Olympic dream? I was still like torn because I was so close. Like I was so close in the Silver Fern squad. I really, really wanted to do that. But these decisions had happened or these moments had happened with a fractured shoulder and not being able to play NPC and then not getting a Mystics trial. Like it was just, 
never going to happen. Like, or it would have if I'd waited. But yeah, that call on the Olympics was just too strong. I was like, okay then, well, this is, this is my sign. I've been given a sign that I'm going to go play rugby. My fractured shoulder told me that I've got dropped from the Mystics. I've got dropped from the Civil Fern squad. I'm going to go play the sport. And yep. I think it was my calling. It was my sign to just give over to this new experience. <laughs> so what happened after 2012, once you'd made it through that Go For Goal program and you'd recovered from your shoulder injury? Um, we had to commit. Yeah, so we, yeah, so I started training with the rugby and it was five o'clock training. <laughs> so we'd train five o'clock in the morning, finish by eight, 8.30 to go to work. And then we'd try maybe have two trainings a week at, at night. <laughs> it's still funny when I think about it. Every second Friday, I wouldn't turn up for training. It was so bad. I'd tell some lame excuse like, oh, I, my mum needs the car or I can't come in today. Or Did they buy it? No. They give me so much crap for it now. They're like, oh, P, who just never came to training on a Friday? <laughs> like thinking about it now, I, why did they not just get rid of me? <laughs> well, there must have been a reason why they didn't. Yeah, well, I'm lucky. Because once, once, but yeah, so we kept training. We train at five o'clock in the morning, train in the afternoon, and then um, Dubai, Dubai 2012 came around, and that was the start. And then I felt the, and I got the buzz from there. And being able to travel, we, we, we traveled economy. We traded, we stayed at this accommodation where you didn't get your laundry washed. So I had to wash, we'd finish a train, we'd finish a tournament. And we'd finish around seven, eight o'clock. We wouldn't get home to the accommodation until about nine, ten, which meant dinner was late, which meant you had to wash your laundry in the bath and wake up and try and have it and hopefully have it dried the next day. So that was that was where we stayed. But I loved it. I didn't have a phone at the time. Like I didn't have a smartphone. I didn't have an iPhone. So I was calling my parents off the hotel phone saying, oh, you know, you got to have to pay for the phone bill when I get back from Dubai. Oh my gosh. Or like didn't have, I didn't have money. I didn't have anything. Like I was this lost kid. I was 21. Like I was old enough. But it was just funny because that was that was the start. That was when I felt the hunger. I think we won that we won that tournament, and I just loved it. It was so good. The vibe of the girls was probably the one thing I loved the most. Um, they this they were so free. You were so free to be who you wanted to be, and that's what I love the most because I'm so weird sometimes, and the girls love me for being as weird as yeah. I am, and I love it. Everyone's weird, right? Everyone's yeah. got their weird quirks and stuff, so I just love that they didn't judge me for it. They didn't care. They were just as weird as I was, and that's what I fell in love with first was the girls and the environment, and then when we got on the field and we did. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What we did, oh my gosh, it was amazing. 
You're listening to Trailblazers here on ECNZ with Kirsty Stanway. I'm talking to the World Rugby Women's Player of the Decade, Portia Woodman. Next, we'll find out how Portia's dream of going to the Olympics panned out right after this. This is Trailblazers with Kirsty Stanway. Welcome back to Trailblazers here on SENZ. I'm Kirsty Stanway chatting with Portia Woodman, very, very lucky, who's just told us about how she transitioned from the court in netball to the rugby field. So, Portia, talk us through those four years from that first ever Sevens tournament in Dubai to the Olympic Games in Rio 2016. I mean, how much changed over those years? No, it changed quite a bit um, with the because as the years went on, like we started off with only four tournaments. I think it was Dubai, China, America, and Amsterdam were our first four tournaments. And each year, one more tournament would get added, so that meant that we'd have to assemble a bit more. And with each assembly, they expected more of us, and so money started to become a thing. Like I think our first contract what was it, like 25,000 was wicked? Because I missed it because I think I was on 12 or 15. Like, that was that cool was money. Awesome. That was awesome. And then 25 was like, yo, we're making things. But, like, so with the expectations, there came came more money. And so we, we were in this little limbo area of, like, semi-professional, leaving amateur, kind of heading into professional round, realm. And that kind of got a little bit awkward too because, you know, like, NZA, or like people expected certain things. Um, we needed to do certain things. And so the we managed to go up the pay thing real quick, which was really cool. And I think 2014, we became fully professional. And that's when I moved down to Tauranga because I needed to be more professional. I couldn't miss any more Friday trainings. It just wasn't some excuse. I didn't want to turn up for a five o'clock training. (laughs) So I moved to Tauranga. Our coach, our physio, our trainer, a few of the girls from the smaller regions were moving there as well. So that was was the start of like the professional kind of game or professional era for our sevens program. And then from there, it started to really ramp up. Okay, let's fast forward to Rio 2016. In the space of four years, you found yourself at the Olympics. You're now able to call yourself, Portia, an Olympian. What is that like? Yeah, it was like, I think when we got to the Olympic Village, I kind of was like, man, I still remember our first meeting. So Sean Horan, he put up this this um, presentation and it was of a kōru. Right, and each part sections of the quarter represented where we are in our program or the years, and every year the quarter would slowly start from a like a pickle to an open fern, and so like I still remember, I remember getting to the village, but like far out, four years ago, we were just talking about the start of the the program, which was the pickle, like now we're it's fully blossomed, and we're already here at the village, like man, that went so fast, and then when you get to, when you got to the village, it was just like crazy because you have like, when I first saw the apartments with all the flags on, I was like, this is so cool. You grow up, every kid grows up watching the Olympics. I don't remember what year they were, but I just remember watching and being stuck to the TV, like glue, watching every event from the track and field to the boxing, to the weightlifting, like all these sports. And I'm here and 
having that dream of wanting to be the fastest woman in the world, wanting to be the fastest hundred meter sprinter was still there, but just for a different sport. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I still don't really believe it. <laughs> I think I'm, and that's how blase or dongy I am is that you don't really realize <laughs> what, what I have already been through. Like, and so when we got to Rio, it was still about, we were lucky enough that we got like two days to kind of explore the village, get out, see everything, see the free McDonald's and all this other stuff. We didn't eat it, but we just got Did to you not until after? No, no, not before, after. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a couple of days to see what the village was and all that sort of stuff. And then it was just get into business time. And once we got into business time, I was like, yep, me. We felt like we we're on the, on top of the world. We felt like we we're hissing. Everything was like, you know, we're ticking every box. It was wicked. This is one of those hard ones to talk about. I mean, it's a moment that uh, will forever be in Kiwi's minds because I remember so vividly that final against Australia and the hooter had gone and the devastation on your faces. I remember seeing you all drop to the ground and just bury your heads in your hands and no one will ever forget the most powerful and emotional haka that you delivered afterwards. Do you still think about those moments? Yeah, that was the driver for the last five-year cycle. Um, I got off that field. I talked to mum and dad and I was like, I never want to feel like this again. And the feeling was I'd let myself down. I don't think I ticked all the boxes um, prior to getting there, you know, when I stand in the tunnel and I have these doubts, I've obviously not ticked everything off. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't got myself right. I think I was still young and naive and thinking that, oh, everything's all butterflies and fairies and we can all get it all sorted with how we play on the field. So I think I was still young and naive and thinking that it was all going to be fine. And it wasn't because I crumbled under pressure. I, um, you know, I felt like I, at the end of the game, I felt like I had disappointed my team. It was my fault. I felt like it was my fault. I We had lost. I got sent off for two minutes. I came back on and I knocked on a ball. And those two pinnacle things allowed like multiple, like mult, allowed the Australians to get back in. And so that that feeling of like disappointing my team, disappointing the coaching staff, disappointing my family who had put up with everything. They traveled over to Rio to come watch. I think I had about five or six Fano members who had come over to watch us. I disappointed them all because I wasn't prepared. I was, yeah, I was just undercooked mentally, I think. And I crumbled under the pressure. Um, that was heartbreak. Definitely look back on it because it was what drove me the last five years, but it's not in the forefront of my mind anymore. This this gold medal and what we went through in the last five years, what our team and everyone else around the world went through is the is what's imprinted in my mind because that's what got us to this gold. We had, like with Com Games, we went through so much stuff with Ruby getting her mumps, um, then COVID hitting, we're all trying to train and figure out what's happening, and then the Olympics getting postponed. I have an injury and I'm out for three years. Like all of that stuff has to help you in some way, and I think it totally did. It made us more resilient. It made us adaptable. I can happily say that we worked hard for each other and for ourselves to kind of be like, no, we're going to this Olympics and we're going there in the best condition we possibly could. 
Yeah, let's talk about your injury because you'd gone from the lowest of lows in Rio to the highs of winning gold at the Commonwealth Games. You guys were on top of the world going through the World Series undefeated and then you were brought back down to earth with that Achilles injury. So what was that like? Because you basically had to learn to run again, right? Yeah, absolutely. Man, I, yeah, so two, it was October 2018. I think when you forget dates, it's a pretty good sign. Um, October 2018, November. We're in the build-up to Dubai um, 2018, and we're just at a training training session. I had warmed up. I had, an, I had like, Arkley's problems two weeks before that, and that day I got clearance to go out and train full-time. And so I've gone out, we did a Bronco test. So I that didn't have a problem on my Achilles and then went into some like game scenario and just went to take off and I snapped it and I rolled around crying like a little baby. It wasn't actually sore. I think it was more from the shock of understanding what I had done. I kind of looked around and was like, who hit me? Because it felt like someone had kicked the back of my leg. And when we were training, some of the boys, I think it was Kurt and Timmy or some of, yeah, some of the boys were training and I knew they were passing the ball. So I thought they were behind me and they just, I don't know, misfired or didn't throw the ball properly and it hit my Achilles. And so when I turned around, I was like, who hit me? Oh, no one's there. I can't know what this means. Damn it. And instantly knew it was my Achilles. And it wasn't the pain that, that made me cry like a little baby. It was more of the shock of what it actually meant. I, my, both my parents had done the Achilles and I've heard about the Achilles and how hard it is. So it was like, damn, I've not been through a big injury before. I, you know, I've had a painful back, but that was three months max. This is potentially a nine to 12 month re rehab set period. And that was hard. That was, that was really hard. I think that day I went home, my friends took me home because Renee was over in USA with the Blackburn, so I had no one. The girls took me home. I pretty much just sat and ate ice cream until my parents got down to pick me up. And that was heartbreak. I was devastated, devastated because I was going to miss out on so much. Like I was in the prime of my game. Like I was really hitting my, my peak, I think. I was maybe 27, I think I was 27. And I really think I was hitting my peak. And so with that injury just meant that I was going to have to start all over again. And it took about a year to get back. And like you say, I really had to learn how to run. I had to learn how to walk. I think the hardest part was learning to calf raise again. I cried every time because I couldn't do it. My mind was telling it to do it, but I couldn't do it. And it wasn't, it was just wasn't strong. And then, but then the cool thing, what I learned about it was like all the little successes that I was getting. So every two weeks, say at the start, every two weeks in my moon boot, I could go from pointed to slowly get flat. And I was like, this is cool. This is cool. This is exciting. And so when the moon boot came off, I was like, <gasps> this is really cool. I can start walking now. And so what I learned was not to dwell on where I'm, where I want to be or where I should be or where I could have been. It's like, okay, I'm now two weeks better than what I was before. And now I can start walking or now I'm starting to like put full body weight and strengthen my calf. Or now I can start doing drills. Like it was really cool to learn how to um, celebrate those little successes and be in the moment because I was, 
so used to thinking ahead and thinking, oh, we've got Olympics in a couple of years. We've got to do this. I've got to, you know, I've got to get faster. I've got to get fitter. My body's not where it needs to be. I was literally, I was literally told to just sit and be where I am because if I'm not, then I'm not getting my rehab done. And that was wicked to be present, to celebrate the little things. And it was cool because they were in little two week chunks. I think if there were any more, I would have been, yeah, I would have been pulling my hair out. But every two weeks I got a little drill. I got a little exercise from the physio saying that I could do a little bit further, a little bit more, a little bit more exciting. So that was, that was my saving grace. That was awesome. And the day I went out to play in Fiji in August, that was wicked. Um, didn't feel I didn't feel like I was at my greatest like I wasn't my best condition ever but it was wicked like we got out I got to I think I ran a couple ball I managed to tackle a couple people but it was just awesome to be back out there and then the next day I tore my hammy yeah (laughs) that hamstring injury I mean no athletes ever want to get injured right they suck but it sounds like this one might have been a bit of a blessing in disguise for you Oh yeah, definitely. I got pretty much 12 months to really look inside because there were times where I just was not into it. Like when I was just standing on the side watching training, I was like, I do not want to be here. I don't care about training right now. I don't care about rugby. There was a lot going going on at home. Like there was just better things to be doing than standing there watching girls do the thing that I want to do. Like, I just did not want to be there. And talking with our mental skills coach, he was like, that's normal. You, you, What you're going through is normal. You, you're not able to do the thing that you love. And what he taught me was to find out what I am that's not rugby. Like, because I, my life was so immersed in rugby and being a rugby player, I had, hadn't figured out who I was outside of it. And so I kind of started a journey, not a journey, but like started to figure out who I am outside of rugby. And I was a mum, which I really enjoyed over that time. I was a partner. She was away. She had times where she was away for big blocks, but I was a partner and I loved that part too. And I was an auntie to my two nephews that live up the road from me. Like there was these aspects of my life that I was, that I am without, with or without rugby. And I loved it. You know, spending time with my daughter, with our daughter, was so cool. We have our own little connection that's like nothing else. And it's nothing like hers and her mum, hers and her mother's connection. It's it's our little connection. And growing that was unreal. You know, we, I do things differently to how her mum does it. And I think that's the best way to do it, you know. and But before that, I was just fully a rugby player. You know, anytime she woke up during the night, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to miss out on sleeping time. Like, I can't do this. This is, I need to get my sleep because I get, need to get ready for rugby. And so, like you say, like this injury was like a blessing in disguise for sure, because I got to learn more of who I am outside of rugby. Rugby is a part of my life. It's not my whole life. Mm-hmm. And that was cool to figure out. I'm a mum. I'm a partner. I'm an auntie. I'm a daughter. And I really love being those things too, because they are who I am and they they are what makes me hurt me. Um, but yeah. Oh, you're giving me warm fuzzies. Like, <laughs> seriously, I feel this one. Um, I feel like Tokyo has made me a little bit soft. 
Portia Woodman, don't go anywhere. When we come back, we'll look at that golden moment in Tokyo and talk about carrying the torch for so many women around the globe. You're listening to Trailblazers here on SENZ. We'll be back right after this. This is Trailblazers with Kirsty Stamway. Portia Woodman here on Trailblazers. And just before we get to Tokyo, when you look at how far the game has come and the opportunities there are for women and girls in rugby and sevens now, you're a part of all of that. So do you feel some kind of responsibility to keep paving the way? Yeah, for sure. Man, even with the girls in our environment, we have the Jazz Hotham, we have Mahina Paul, Risi Pody Lane. Like these girls are so young and they are, they've been in our environment since they were 18. And I'm just like, do you have any idea how long you could potentially be in this team? And by the time you're our age, like what state this environment is going to be in? Like, this is so cool. And then I look to my daughter who's nine and how long she might, you know, how long, how far away she might be in this environment. I'm so grateful that we are able to be where we are so that we can make it better by the time they get there. Um, I think the cool thing when I was injured was I got to experience different aspects. So coming and work with you guys for Sky was really cool. Um, And I don't think, and I think, with rugby, it's opened up these doors for me because I'm not a person to go to a uni, sit down in a class. I've tried it three times and I haven't finished a damn thing. So I don't think that's me. <laughs> I'm going to have to find my own way in life and that's not going to uni. So what I've loved is with rugby, it's opened up these doorways for me to do to pursue a career around it, around rugby. Working with you guys with Sky was wicked. I absolutely loved it. Um, it builds your confidence. And my mum has always said, the more you do it, the better you get. Mm-hmm. And I thought by the time I finished, I was really kind of hitting my straps. So if I was to pursue something in Sky, I'd really enjoy it. And then there's the coaching pathway. I'd really enjoy it. Yeah. There's, there's, and then hopefully by the time, you know, I finish in a couple of years time, um, there'll be something overseas where I can head overseas and do something over there. But I'm truly honoured and kind of scares me too that we are so responsible. We can we have the responsibility for our younger generation. Um, looking when I was younger, when I was nine, I had no idea about the Black Ferns. I think I knew that they were black. That they I knew their name was Black Ferns and I knew they were like four times world champions. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who was in the team. I didn't know. I didn't get to see a, see a game. Um, didn't know who was coach or any, anything about it. But now they, the girls have two teams that are both world champions. And to have that responsibility is quite scary, you know, like, um, but yeah, it's quite scary, but it, all I have to think about is being the best person that I can be. That's easy because it's, it's just me being me and I, I'm a clown. I'm, I'm loving, I'm caring, I'm strong in my beliefs. I'm proud to be Māori. And if that's all I have to do, then I'm happy to do that. Um, but when you start thinking about what could be, what might, what would happen, that's when you start getting into this, the, the era of, or the, the realm of fear and not wanting to stuff up. But, there's no time, no space for that. It's just be who you want to be. Like you, Christy, you've you've now launched into this TV arena and I love watching it and I 
look up to you guys, you and Ricky, of what you guys have pursued and what you guys have achieved. That's, that's huge and amazing to be able to see you guys on TV all the time is wicked and I love it. And so the fact that you're inspiring me to be able to do that, I want to be able to inspire someone else too, which is really, really cool. I love it. To wrap it up then, when you look back at everything that's happened over the last five years, the hardships, the heartbreak of Rio, the injuries, COVID-19, and then winning that gold medal in Tokyo, is there any better feeling in the world than that moment? No. No. Like you say, the accumulation of everything that we have been through, not just our team, but everyone in this world, to have that moment is nothing, there's nothing else. There's nothing else that could compare right now. To get that gold um, solidifies all the work that we have done and all the sacrifice that we have, all the choices we have made over the last five, 10 years. It's been, it's the best. Nothing else compares. Will you go another round? I'm going to hang around for as long as I can. (laughs) Portia Woodman, I could talk to you for hours. You are the most incredible chat. You are such an inspiration for so many Kiwis and and people around the world, men, women, boys and girls. And this whole country has ridden this journey with you over the last five years. So thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. And once again, congratulations on that gold medal in Tokyo and thank you so much for joining us here on Trailblazers. Thank you so much, Thea.